Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The word of the Lord. When I was growing up, uh, you know, my mom would, uh, as I'm sure many of this happened would in your families, uh, growing up, my mom just around the kitchen table as we're sitting around making food or cleaning up after a meal, uh, we would just, she would just share what I like to call kitchen table stories. Uh, and oftentimes these were stories, uh, for example, of her growing up in Korea. Uh, she would tell about how uh, she had a mother and a father, a father would le- left early, so it really was just her and her sisters and her mom. Growing up in Seoul, she had a a fairly well-off uncle, which allowed her to go to women's college uh, in Seoul, which was unusual at the time. Or stories about my father's family, who actually uh, lived in Pyongyang, which is the capital now of North Korea, and they had to flee all their family from the north uh, into the south just before the Korean War began. Or it'd be stories of how they met while they were working at a bank right after they finished their undergrad, or stories of my dad getting involved in student demonstrations and not being able to walk for his graduation because of all the politics that were happening in Korea. But we would just hear all these stories around the kitchen table. And for the longest time, I would sit there, and while I would enjoy them, they always felt like stories to me that were the stories of far-off lands, uh, stories of people I'd never met. Uh, oftentimes, there were stories of people whose names I couldn't pronounce or these places that I couldn't pronounce. And so there was always a sense of distance uh, when it come, came to listening to these stories uh, until I got older and I began to realize the stories that my mom was telling me weren't the stories of far-off lands and distant people whose names I couldn't pronounce. It started to dawn on me, actually, these stories are my stories Uh, They're actually stories that tell me who I am here in America uh, as a child of Korean immigrants. I suddenly began to realize those kitchen stories weren't narrating the stories of others. It was actually narrating the story of myself. One of the things that happens when you become a Christian is that the stories of the Bible cease to be stories of far-off people in distant lands whose names you can't pronounce. But at some point when you become a Christian, you begin to realize these aren't foreign stories. These are actually the stories that tell me who I am. They're actually God's kitchen table stories that tells me, remember who you are. 
this is where you came from. These are the stories that have shaped the family of God. These are the stories that have shaped the plan of God's redemption throughout all of history. And so we've been in a series here at Redeemer East Harlem called In the Beginning. And in doing so, we've been talking about these stories as origin stories. They're kitchen table stories. Uh, that for many of you, you may be hearing these stories and you might be wondering, what does this have to do with me? Uh, how, how does this inform anything in my life today? And I want to challenge you. Is it possible to sit before these stories and hear them as kitchen table stories? Uh, God, your father, saying, hey, why don't you pull up a chair? Let me tell you who you are, where you came from. Today, we come to the story of the Tower of Babel. And it's a story of places that we've never been, people that we've never met. Uh, but the to- story of Babel, I want to challenge you. I want to I, I bet you. I want to challenge you and say you will find yourself in this story. That if you're paying attention, you're going to see yourself in the story of Babel because this is meant to be that kitchen's table story. So let's look at the text today. Uh, first thing I want to look at is uh, I want to consider the quest that we are all on. So this is a human kitchen table story, the quest that we're all on. Secondly, I want to look in the text at the journey that God goes on. And then finally, let's look at the home that we're all searching for. Okay? So it's a quest that we're all on, the journey that God goes on, and then the home that we're all looking for. So let's look at each one of those. First, uh, let's consider the quest that we're all on. Uh, Look at verse 4, if you can put it up on the screen there. Verse 4 tells us this. Uh, that the people who were building the Tower of Babel, they said to one another, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. At the heart of the story is a story of a people who's on a quest to make a name for themselves. Uh, it's a people that are searching for a name for ourselves. Now, now what does that mean? What does a name mean for us? It certainly has great significance in the Bible, but it still has great significance in our culture today. On the one hand, your name, searching for a name for yourself means that you're searching for your value as an individual. Is there a place where I can go where I'm not a number, I'm not a face, but I'm known by my name? I think one of the most powerful stories that captures this is Alex Haley's uh, epic series, The uh, Roots, where there's that scene where there's a real battle between Kunza Kinze, who is the main character there, and a slave master who had named him Toby. And if you remember that scene, Kunza Kinze insists upon being called by his full African name. Why? What's, what's going on in that scene? It is an act of resistance that says, I will refuse to be reduced to how useful I am to you. I will refuse to allow my value as an individual to be reduced to a form of property. That my value as an individual goes far beyond my utility to you. That I have family, I have stories, I have culture, I have language, I have meaning, I have value, I have dignity far beyond what you might assign to me with a new name. Or another example that I love, too, is uh, Les Miserables, where, if, in, remember in the musical, I'm not going to sing it, I'll spare you the torture. Uh, what's the difference between Jean Valjean and that story being called the Jean Valjean versus Prisoner 24601? And the difference there is his humanity. 
uh, that he, his value will not be reduced to a number in a larger system to keep track of folks. That there is an inherent value, an inherent dignity. And so the people of Babel, what are they doing? They're searching for a name for themselves. This is why the text tells us that they built for them a city. A city in the ancient world was the place of safety, and it was also oftentimes a place of prosperity. And so when they say they were out there searching for a name for themselves, it's absolutely natural that they would build the city because this is a place, this is a community where I can know I will belong, where my name will be identified, where I'll be seen, where I'll be valued. This is a community where I belong. And they're searching for that in this world. Do you uh, see yourself in this story yet? Do you see yourself and maybe a lot of the decisions that you make throughout the week that you're searching for a name for yourself in a city as big as New York, oftentimes as impersonal as New York? Do you see yourself saying, is there a place where I'm seen? Is there a place where I'm valued? Is there a place where I belong? Is there a place where I have a name and that name means something? Uh, But this quest for a name uh, isn't just about my value as an individual. The quest for a name is actually also about this search for greatness, isn't it? That many people come to New York City in order to make a name for themselves. It's this search for significance. And we see that in this passage as well. If you can throw up verse 4 again there. They say, come, let us build ourselves, what? First, a city, a place of belonging, a place of identity. But also, they seek to build a tower, not just any tower. They want to build a tower that's going to reach up to the heavens. Now, what does that mean? It's not just a very tall tower. It's not just a tallest tower that has ever been built by humanity. They're seeking to build a tower that will reach all the way up to the heavens. What are they searching for? They're searching for greatness. They're searching for immortality. This is the ancient Near Eastern version of seeing their name in lights being top of the bill, the name that draws everybody in, the name that everybody knows. It's a search for greatness. It's a search for immortality. And it's a search that drives us all. Now, I'm going to ask us a question. Justin, this might be the question that splits the church, so I apologize in advance. Some of you might not even care. But here's a question that I want to ask you that might split this church. Uh, Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Uh, so for those of you who would say Michael Jordan, raise your hand. Okay. All right. Those of you who would say LeBron James, raise your hand. A soul, br- single brave soul in the back. Thank you, sister. Thank you for your courage. Many of you might say, I don't even care. I don't even know who those people are. Bernard King. Wow. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm tempted to take nominations at this point. So the greatest player of all time, I'm going to come back to this. There was an article in ESPN magazine. I know sports is not for everybody, so I apologize if I'm kind of losing like uh, sports. But there was an article in ESPN magazine that to me was fascinating because it has to do with way more than sports. The title of the, uh, of the article was Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. And it's essentially an article talking about since Michael Jordan's retirement, since the moment that he walked off an NBA court for the very last time in his career, 
The article was talking about from that moment on, all Michael, Michael Jordan believed that he had achieved immortality. If there's anybody who's achieved immortality through their achievements, it's Michael Jordan. But the article and the author goes on to talk about how ever since then, everything that's happened has just been a chipping away at what he thought was immortality. Let me just read. Uh, it's a little bit of a long section, but I think it's compelling enough where you be able to track along. The writer writes this, a guy named Wright Thompson. He says, aging means losing things, and not just eyesight and flexibility. It means watching the accomplishments of your youth be diminished. Most people live anonymous lives, and when they grow old and die, any record of their existence is blown away. They're forgotten, some more slowly than others, but eventually it happens to virtually everyone. Yet for the few people in each generation who reach the very pinnacle of fame and achievement, a mirage flickers. Immortality. They come to believe in it. Even after Jordan is gone, he knows people will remember him. Here lies the greatest basketball player of all time. That's his epitaph. When he walked off the court for the last time, he must have believed that nothing could ever diminish what he'd done. That knowledge would be his shield against aging. And the author continues, Yet all glory is fleeting. Jordan couldn't have known that the closest he'd get to immortality was during that final walk off the court, the one symbolically preserved in the print in his office. All that can happen in the days and years that follow is for the shining moment he built to be chipped away piece by piece, eroded to dust. And it's a powerful piece because it touches on something that we are all searching for. That many of us might be at an age where we recognize, well, I'm, I, I won't be the Michael Jordan of my field. And maybe you've come to make peace with that. But what the peace touches on is that even if you were to be the greatest in your field, even our little poll that we started off with, what it reflects is that from that moment on, it's been a chipping away piece by piece. This monument that he built eroded to dust. That we have in our hearts this search to matter. This quest for significance. And the key insight that I want to draw out of this story of Michael Jordan, the key insight is that your search to matter is a, is a profoundly spiritual longing. It's not a material longing. It's not a personal longing. It's not a moral longing. It's not a longing uh, 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 for wealth. It is a profoundly spiritual longing. Or let me put it another way. That longing to matter is a fingerprint of God upon your soul. Because you were meant to matter for eternity. And your achievements will never get you there. You were meant to matter because somewhat the only one who has mattered for all of eternity looks upon you and says, I will die for you. That's what your soul has been made for. Friends, this is the quest that we're all on. We are all living east of Eden, wandering in the wilderness. We're all searching for a city where our names are known. 
We're all looking to build a tower of greatness to ourselves. We're all trying to make a name for ourselves. But what I want you to hear is that the only place you can find a name is with the God who has known your name before he laid the foundations of this earth. Friends, do you see yourself in the story yet? But there's a third key insight that we can't miss. I'm tempted to blow by it because it's not a fun insight. It's an insight that will sting a little bit. But I think as a pastor, I have to sometimes apply the knife in order to get to health. But if you look at verses 3 and 4 again, let me read that for you. Where is it here? Uh, They said to one another, this is the people of Babel, they say, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they say, come, let's build for ourselves the city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. There are a couple of details that I want to draw out because I think they're important. The first thing is in verse 3. Isn't it interesting? Why do you think the biblical author made sure to say, to include this detail that they wanted to make bricks and bake them thoroughly rather than using stone? Why is that even in there? Or it says we want to use tar for mortar. So tar, the Hebrew word there is actually a word for bitumen, which is actually a substance that requires mixing and distilling in order to function like mortar. Why is it important that they use bricks instead of stone, this bitumen mix instead of mud, to build these towers? What's the significance of that? Even in the very materials that the people of Babel were using, they were saying we want to do this our way. They were saying, we don't want to use any of the materials that you give to us, God. We're making our own materials, which, of course, is silly. Because how do you make bricks without using stuff that God has made? How do you make bitumen without using the stuff that God has made? It's silly. But even in the choice of materials was this act of rebellion to say, we want a name for ourselves. It was an act of revolt against God. It was a desire to say, we don't care for your greatness. We want our greatness, and we want greatness on our own terms. And so we'll use our technology to do it our own way. Or even look at the detail of the tower. We mentioned this already. Here's a tower that specifically says it reaches up to the heavens. Now, what kind of tower typically would be a tower that reaches to the heavens? Well, typically in the ancient Near East, it would be a temple. Those are oftentimes the tallest structures that you would find in a city. In the ancient Near East, there were these structures called ziggurats that looked like almost like a huge wedding cake. And they were meant to be uh, these structures, these temples that were stairways up to the heavens. But in ancient Babylon, where these ziggurats are found, those structures were understood to be stairways by which the gods would come down. Here we have a tower that says we're going to build a tower that's going to take us all the way up to the heavens. This is not a temple in worship of the God. This is a tower meant to scale the walls of heaven and to invade the throne of God so that we might sit in it ourselves. That it was a tower that was intended to be rejection of God. Actually, the word Babel in Babylon means the gate of the gods. They understood this to be the place where the gods would come down. But here, they're creating siege works to climb the walls of heaven and to invade for themselves. 
And even today, you take the tallest buildings in a city, and it'll give you a little sense for what that city worships. You go down to D.C., the tallest ones are these political monuments. Maybe it's the Washington Monument. Here in New York City, the tallest buildings are the buildings of commerce, wealth, and power. But here was, a, here was a tower that was meant to reach to the heaven. But there's a third detail that I want to draw out here. And this is in the latter part of verse 4. What's the reason? Why? Do you remember? Why do they want to build the city in a tower? What's their reasoning? Well, the text tells us at the end of verse 4, it says, the reason that they do that is because they did not want to be scattered across the entire earth. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that they did not want to be scattered? Why is that a concern for them? But do you remember in Genesis 1 and 2, we looked at that a few weeks ago? What was God's command to Adam and Eve? Go out and fill the earth. They were never meant to stay home in Eden, enjoying grapes and being fanned by fig leaves. It says, go out, fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply. What happens after Noah and the flood? God destroys it. What, what does he say? Go out, fill the earth, and multiply. When the people of Babel say, we don't want, we got to build a city and a tower. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered over the, all the earth. Do you see what they're doing? They're shaking their fist at God, and they're saying, we don't want to do the work you've asked us to do. We don't want to fill this earth. We don't want to be scattered. We don't want to do your work. We want to do things our way. We want to do things for our glory. We want to do things because we are the ones that deserve all of that. That there is a deep and profound rebellion at the heart of all of this. Now, here's why I said that this might sting a little. Because at the heart of your desire to find a place where you're valued, where you're seen, where you belong, a city where you're known, or the heart of a desire for greatness, to be significant, to matter. Underneath all that is actually a desire to do it without God. As a way to shake your fist at God, to say, I'm building bricks, I'm not using stone. I'm using tar bitumen, I'm not using mud. And all the while God's like, that's my bitumen. Those are my bricks. There's nothing, the, the breath that you use to reject and deny me is breath that I have given you in the first place. So friends, this is the quest that we're all on. It's this desire, not just for greatness, it's a desire to scale the walls of heaven for ourselves. Let's move on to the second point. The quest that we're all on, that was the longest point. Secondly, did you notice that God also goes on a journey here? As we're looking at the second point, the journey that God goes on. Let's read verses 5 through 9 again. So all that has happened, verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, the, building, uh, the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse our language. They will not understand each other. God goes on a journey himself. So this, I love this about this text. This is probably my favorite part of this passage. Because here's a setup. Remember, the people of the Bible says, we're going to build this tower, and it's going to reach heaven. We're scaling the walls of heaven. It's going to be the biggest thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to inspire awe and fear and trembling. It's going to be the most grandiose, the most spectacular, the most splendid thing that anybody has ever uh, seen. It's going to reach all the way to heaven. Well, how does God respond? 
oh, you're building a tower to heaven? I can't see it from up here. Let me come down. Wait, is that the one? Oh, that's cute. I like that. The journey that God comes on is to look at all of our human pretensions and for him to say, oh, I think I see it. Let me get a little closer. That there is like serious shade being thrown at the people of Babel by God in heaven. And yet what I love about that is that here is a God who nevertheless comes down. So let me say a couple of things. First, the God of the Bible is way way, way, way bigger than your imagination right now is giving him credit for. He's going to have to come down. That's how great he is. Look, if you're facing something right now that's filling your heart with fear, did you know that your Father in heaven has to come down to see this thing that is causing you such fear? And he says, that's nothing for me. There's something in your life that's causing you sorrow or despair, and you say, there's no way. This is too big. There's nothing that can overcome this. How am I ever going to get out of this? How am I ever going to work through this grief? How am I ever going to? Did you know that you have a father who loves you in heaven who's so great, who's so powerful, who's so majestic, that he has to come down? Because that's how small that threat is. Do you see how big this God is? And yet when God comes down, it's not because he's a God of distance. He's just a God of unspeakable greatness. And the moment you place your faith in Christ, God uses every ounce of that greatness for your good. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And so here in this passage, God comes down. And he's ready to come down and meet you wherever you are as well. But when God comes down, what does he do? Look at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 are interesting, isn't it? So God comes down and he says what? The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now, when you hear that, doesn't God sound a little bit insecure? He says, if they're speaking one language, they're able to do this, then nothing's going to be possible for them. We have to, we have to uh, uh, scramble up their languages. We have to confuse their languages. Doesn't God feel, sound like he's a little bit threatened? Nothing will be impossible. But what if actually when God says that, he's not responding with insecure judgment? But what if he's coming down and saying, look, if you guys can do this, and bring this kind of destruction on yourself, what else are you going to do to yourselves? I have to stop that. I have to protect you from yourself. What if it's an act of great divine patience and mercy, not an act of insecure judgment? So it's kind of like some of you, our parents, or even if you don't know, maybe you've been around uh, two-year-olds enough, but there's a time when you have a baby, when they start walking, where you now have to baby-proof your whole house. So you have to lock up all the cabinets. You have to put, like, soft things on the corner of all your tables, right? You have to, to baby-proof everything in your house because they just walk around, and they're just a menace. They tear down everything. Anything they get their hands on, they pull it down, and they put it in their mouth, everything. Imagine if you were the two-year-old 
watching your parents baby-proof your house, and you're like, oh, my parents are threatened by me. (laughs) They don't want me to get into their books because they're afraid of what I'll know if I read their books. They don't want me to get into their dishes because they're afraid of what will happen if I get to the dishes. What if that two-year-old said, my parents are threatened. That's why they're locking all this stuff up. God says, I need to come down, and I need to, I need to mix up your languages. Because if I don't protect you from yourself, you, who knows what you could do? Or do you know what? And i got to keep moving, sorry. Do uh, you know what a Rorschach test is? They used to use it a lot more in psychotherapy. It's basically like an ink blot on a sheet of paper, and it's like a random shape. And in psychotherapy, they use it and say, what do you see in this Rorschach test? And you might be a butterfly or it might be, you know, whatever it might be. And just identify what you think that ink blot looks like. And in, in psychotherapy, it used to tell you a lot more about what's going inside your own heart than it said about anything on that actual page. I actually think these verses are kind of like a big spiritual Rorschach test. That when you read God say, if I don't go down there and mix up their languages, who knows what they'll be capable of? If you hear that and you hear a God of insecure judgment, I want to suggest to you that actually says more about your spiritual standing with God than it does about anything on the page. Or if you hear that and you say, here's a God who in his love will go out of his way to protect us from ourselves. That that reveals you've seen this God, that God is somebody that you believe is fundamentally trustworthy. That you believe that God is someone whose intentions for you, you can trust. And so maybe it tells you more about yourself than what's on the page. Because the Bible says at the core of all of our hearts is we have a fundamental mistrust of God. That's what we mean by the word sin. We fundamentally believe that God is not for us, that he cannot be trusted. And so, friends, here again, there might be something happening in your life right now where you say, God can't be trusted. There might be something in your, in, happening in your heart, right, in your life right now that makes you say, I don't think God is for me. I can't trust God's intentions for me. And what this passage want to show you is, look, it tells you more about your heart than the God of the universe. When that posture of mistrust comes up, that's the root of what we call sin. And then you might ask me, well, Abe, how could I know if God is really for me? How could I possibly know that with everything that I've been through in my life, with all the hardships, for all the ways where God didn't come through when I felt like he, I needed him? How could I possibly know that God is for me. Well, that leads us to the third and our final point, which is the home that we're all looking for. Because do you want to know what the real tragedy of this story, the Tower of Babel, is? So if you remember the Tower of Babel, what they're after, the real tragedy is not the hubris, it's not the rebellion, it's not the division of humanity, it's not all those things. The real tragedy of this chapter in Genesis chapter 11 is that the Tower of, the people of Babel were looking for a name, They were looking for a people. They were looking for a land that they could call home. And they shook their fists at God and said, we're going to do it our way. But the real tragedy is this. 
What happens in Genesis chapter 12, the chapter right after this one? Right after this rebellion, Genesis chapter 12. You know how those verses open up? This is the story of Abraham. We'll be looking at it next week. But here's what it says. Remember, the people of Babel were looking for to make a name great. They were looking for a land, and they were looking for a people. Genesis 12 says this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land that I will show you. And he says this. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The great tragedy of Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, is that God was planning to give them everything they were looking for as a free gift all along. What they tried to earn for themselves, a great name, God says, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to make you into a people. I'm going to give you land where you can settle. I'm going to get everything that your hearts desire, everything that you want, everything you think that I'm your adversary for. I was going to give it to you all along as a gift of free grace. I would have given it to you if you had merely received. Friends, where are you mistrusting God's intention for you right now? Where have you turned him into your adversary? Where might God be telling you right now, I'm not against you, I'm for you. I was going to give it to you all along. And so the great irony of this passage is that as the people of Babel were building these siege works to scale the walls of heaven, to make a name great for themselves as they were busy laboring this upward mobile ambitious aspiration to take over the throne of God as the people of Babel were building that as you and I have built our lives building our own towers of Babel. Do you know what God was busy doing? God was busy stepping out of the city of heaven, stepping down those stairs. God was busy coming down to us. That while we were trying to be busy making ourselves gods unto our own lives, God himself was willing to lose all of his glory. He was busy losing it all, taking on human flesh. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, coming down from heaven. And while you and I were busy about how great we could possibly be, while you and I were busy finding ways to rebel and shake our fists at God, God was busy coming down for you and for me. And while he, we were shaking our fists at him, while we were mocking him, while we were spitting upon him, while we were rejecting him with our lives, he was drawing nearer and nearer and nearer, and he was taking every single one of those blows upon himself the one whose name is above all names, allowed his name to be written on the cross of a criminal so that your name for all of your crimes could be lifted up in Jesus. Friends, you were made to matter for eternity. 
Lay down all of your deadly doings. Lay down all of your achievements. Lay down all of that. And return to a God who says, if I've laid my life down for you, of course you can trust me. Of course you can trust my intentions for me. No one else has done that. Lay down your swords. Lay down your deadly doings. Lay down your good works. Lay down your bad works. Repent of it all. And come to Jesus. He will make your name great. Because his is a name that is above all names. Let's come to him now. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and Lord, we want to lay us, we turn away from all the ways that we've insisted upon the glory of our own. Lord, we turn away from all the ways that we thought we had to make a a great name for ourselves. We turn away from all the ways that we've mistrusted your intentions for us. Lord, we turn away from it all. And we ask, oh Lord, that you would help us to see that here is a God who comes down, comes down to us right in the place of our pain, right in the place of our rebellion. Here is a God who comes down to us, a God of incredible greatness, and yet who's come down not only to meet us, but who's come down into a grave, buried in the depths of hell itself, and raised up for our forgiveness. So Lord, we ask that as we come to your table now, Lord, help us to see that here is where we meet the God. This is the city of our belonging. That this is the name that is a name above all names. And yet his body was broken and his blood poured out. Meet us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.